Hello and welcome. This is Dr. Stuart Tully for History 313. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the Great Depression. Talking about the Great Depression. Talking about uh, not just the Great Depression, also the New Deal era. The New Deal era. So going ahead, uh, get the PowerPoint on Moodle. Go ahead and click ahead and we're going to go over. So if we go over one slide, let's do a little introduction. Now, the Great Migration, which we talked about previously, moved all sorts of African-Americans to new locations to find uh, non-union labor work. Pretty much those who came in the Great Migration did not have union work. And this worked okay while World War I was going on, and actually continued into the Harlem Renaissance of the 1920s. Uh, for the past couple weeks, we've been talking about the Great Migration and kind of the revitalization that happened to African-Americans because of the Harlem Renaissance and this new locations where they're living. Now, all of this, though, is on very precarious ground, uh, dependent upon a good economy that had plenty of jobs. You know, something like the Harlem Renaissance is able to occur. You know, you're able to have people, you know, find good work as actors and poets and musicians, find willing patrons because of a fairly good economy. Likewise, because the economy is pretty good and there's not that much competition over jobs, uh, companies are more willing to hire African-Americans to work in various jobs. Now, this is definitely tested by the Great Depression. Now, if you don't know about the Great Depression, um, it's not the class that explains the Great Depression. Hopefully, you know what the Great Depression was. But this is talking about how it impacted African-Americans. And despite being a smaller percentage of the U.S. population, you know, anywhere from 13 to 15 percent, depending upon uh, the year, African-Americans were disproportionately impacted by the Great Depression. Uh, in general, African-Americans were more likely to experience job loss and have much um, lower wages in general, be in worse economic positions than their white counterparts. Now, this also applies to both rural and urban areas. Both rural and urban areas are definitely impacted by the Great Depression. Those who live, African-Americans who live in these rural areas or urban areas, are definitely very impacted by the Great Depression. There's really no place in the U.S., which is better for African-Americans surviving the Great Depression. It's, it's pretty much all not that great. Now, the D Depression does allow, though, for some switching of party allegiance and was the beginning of African-Americans uh, joining the Democratic Party. Still very much a small group in this time period, but you have more movement of more African-Americans going towards the Democratic Party. Now, this dynamic is kind of problematic, as we're going to see when we talk about FDR, the New Deal programs. Um, FDR is the first Democrat to really try to court the African-American vote. He doesn't get too many votes. He gets some. Uh, but as we're going to see with the New Deal programs, there's a lot of issues that they have regarding how um, African-Americans use the New Deal and how African-Americans um, are served by the New Deal, honestly. Now, this is not to say all is hopeless by any stretch of the imagination, and in some sense, it does set the stage for later civil rights movements, particularly with the lead into World War II. But with that, um, you know, you can see in the introduction right there that, that picture, fairly famous picture of a, uh, of a relief line, African-American workers standing in front of a billboard that you know, adv advertises that the U.S. has the highest standard of living and they're standing in the relief line. So let's talk about the Depression itself. You go over one side, you will see sharecroppers during the Great Depression. Actually, this is actually during the 20s. It's not even during the Great Depression. This is actually during the 20s. Because although the economics of the 1920s show it to be a, a fairly boom time, things seem to be fairly up, there are some underlying issues going on even in the 1920s. 
The main one has to do with the wealth gap. Uh, wealth gap. You might have heard about that before. You might have heard people talking about it uh, in various times. You know, the you know, the top five percent of the U.S. population controls whatever percentage of the wealth, while the lower percent only has a much uh, you know much larger percentage, but a much lower percentage of the wealth. Uh, the time in U.S. history that was the greatest gap between rich and poor was actually the 1920s. So it's ironic that the 1920s, you know, if you have a 1920s party or you, you've seen things like The Great Gatsby, it makes it look like everything is all flappers and, you know, bathwater gin and people dancing to Charleston. But in actuality, most Americans were actually uh, quite poor during the Great Depression. And this includes African-Americans. Um, African-Americans, uh, historically speaking, have tended to be disproportionately on the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum in the United States. And the 1920s was when it was at its apex. The other problem has to do with agriculture. That's why I include this agriculture picture. Uh, the African-American migrations, not just for World War I, but also in the 1920s. Actually, the, the migration of African-Americans in the 1920s is actually larger than one of World War I. They're still going to the same places, like Chicago and New York and things. But it demonstrates that there were major problems going on in the southern agriculture sphere, even as early as like 1924, 1925. So even before the stock market crash, there are major underlying problems in southern agriculture that are going on that are frankly being masked by the soaring stock market. Uh, because the stock market was doing just so artificially bonkers good during the 1920s, it masked a lot of other problems going on. This is not unusual. Um, when things are good, it's, it's very easy to overlook uh, problems and be like, hey, you know, yeah, we, we've got a leak on our resources, but uh, who cares? Everything's going great. There are some major issues going on in Southern agriculture. Uh, this one sounds kind of counterintuitive, but the boll weevil. Uh, the boll weevil, it was an infestation. It's, a, it's like a little insect. It's a horrible little insect, the boll weevil. It was destroying cotton crops left and right. It was destroying cotton crops left and right and devastating a lot of cotton crops throughout the United States. There were several cotton failures. Now, what, what happens because of the boll weevil is actually weirdly counterintuitive. You would think, okay, well, this would drive all these farmers to despotism because there's less carpet, uh, cotton on the market. The thing is, though, fear of the boll weevil, sorry, if there's less crop on the market, the prices should go up. That, that's simple supply and demand. That's economics 101. So theoretically, uh, the boll weevil should have helped cotton prices go up. I mean, it's a horrible way to make them go up, but it would cause scarcity, and that would mean prices would go up. The problem is fear of the boll weevil caused farmers to overproduce. Cotton farmers, sharecroppers, everybody, they're making way more cotton. They're, playing, they're planting tremendously more cotton than they ought to for fear of the boll weevil. This causes a glut of cotton on the market, which would, of course, cause prices to go down. And if prices go down, sharecroppers get screwed. Sharecroppers are going to get screwed regardless. But sharecroppers... They don't make their money back. They go deeper into debt, and the way they think they're going to make more money is to grow more stuff. It seems counterintuitive, but uh, that's pretty much what happens. And not just that, everybody's terrified of the boll weevil. Now, this is something I'm going to, I'm going to kind of skip ahead a little bit to talk about what FDR does for this and how it screws over African-Americans, because this is a very, this is probably the most indicative of all these issues. 
Um, this is a major problem, you know, the f- fact that farm prices are just being destroyed left and right. And FDR promises to do something about it in the New Deal, resulting in the Agricultural Adjustment Act, the AAA. Uh, not the car people, they're not going to give you a tow. The Agricultural Adjustment Act. And on paper, this should work. On paper, this should work. In the most basic terms, the AAA paid landowners and farmers not to grow stuff. It pays what's known as subsidy. It gave farmers subsidies not to grow certain crops. They basically tell a farmer, hey, Farmer Jim, you know, you ordinarily plant, uh, I don't know, six acres of cotton. This year, we're going to pay you to leave three of your acres, you know, dormant. So you only grow three acres of cotton. And we're going to pay you some money to help offset what you lose. This would cause scarcity. This would cause the price of things to go up. That should help out farmers. The problem is, how does it screw over fair sharecroppers? Well, most sharecroppers, by their definition, actually, no sharecroppers, own their own land. And the AAA gave money to landowners. It did not give money to sharecroppers or just farmers in general. It only gave it to the landowners. Now, in theory, the landowner is supposed to give this to everybody with own their property. They're supposed to, you know, if let's say they, you know, they own 20 acres and they share crop 10 of them out, well, you know, half of the money that they got from the AAA is going to be given to their sharecroppers if they were an honest person. But the federal government has no way to enforce this, and oftentimes in southern states, it's administrated by southern Democrats who are part of FDR's party and also the ones who are most invested in things like segregation. What ends up happening is that landowners would get this money and not give it to any of their sharecroppers. And to add insult to entry, they would also evict those sharecroppers off the land. They would use this as an opportunity to evict sharecroppers off the land and pretty much make them lose their job entirely. Several sharecroppers were displaced by the Agricultural Adjustment Act. And in fact, it's often seen as the end of sharecropping for reasons that I'm going to get into later. Now, is sharecropping ending probably a good thing in the long term? Yeah, sharecropping was a horrible economic system, which screwed over the sharecroppers entirely. However, if you're a sharecropper who has no other way to make money, and you're dependent upon this land you know, that you're, that you're renting out, and now you've been evicted with nowhere else to go, yeesh, there are some major issues there. This demonstrated that sharecropping was still kind of a plantation system, And despite all the rhetoric of paternalism, because that's one thing that uh, landowners often try to do, they really try to push this idea of they were um, like a family to their their sharecroppers. Same sort of rhetoric that they had during the um, slave days. Slave masters often said that about their slaves. It still said that, hey, you know, this was an economic system and – the landowners were all too willing to throw sharecroppers out on the street. All too willing. Now, the other thing that happens, uh, interestingly enough, black urban dwellers uh, were actually experiencing the Great Depression or the Depression as early as 1925, long before the stock market actually crashed, uh, for a number of reasons, uh, mainly due to job cuts. Uh, the Great Migration of World War I promised, you know, fairly good wages for African American workers if they worked non-union jobs. While most of the while most of the workforce was drafted or 
sorry, most of the traditional white workforce was drafted or otherwise used in World War One. Uh, that doesn't really help because while, you know, whenever these World War One soldiers do come back, oftentimes they want their jobs. That's not too big of an issue. I mean, I I should back off. That is quite an issue for some. The main thing, though, that really makes a lot of these uh, jobs go away in urban areas for African-Americans is the loss of jobs due to mechanization. Um, World War I, and actually, I'll give you a little bit of a spoiler. That's also what's going to happen to sharecropping. Uh, Mechanization um, is able to produce a lot more for a lot less money. And also is able to do it uh, more uniformly, more more exactly, and pretty much eliminates a lot of low-skill worker. A lot of low-skilled non-union labor, which, by the way, most of these African-Americans who come in through the Great Migration are, they are already gotten cut. So even as early as the mid-1920s, things are not all 100% great for African-Americans. Now, once the stock market actually crashes in 1929, it gets a lot worse, like a lot worse. Uh, black banks and other financial institutions, they close in much higher numbers than their white counterparts. And by the way, white banks and businesses close quite a bit during this time period. I mean, I'm sure you know that. But this pretty much ruins, uh, pretty much eliminates forever the black banking industry. Uh, black banks were something that existed for the longest time in the United States because white banks would not bank with African Americans. Uh, banks are very important, uh, not just for saving your money. I mean, that's it's adorable that banks do that. And I'm not saying don't put your money in a bank. It's a safe place to have it. But the main thing banks do is they lend money out for businesses and other things. And if a bank goes under, a lot of businesses are going to go under too because they don't have the capital to start it up. Uh, Most businesses, it takes them a long time to earn a profit. In fact, several businesses never earn a profit. And they're very dependent upon getting loans from banks to make payroll, uh, initial expenses for starting a business. Now that African-Americans don't have the banks, this starts closing a ton of different businesses, particularly middle and upper class businesses for African-Americans. They don't have the capital to draw upon to create new businesses, nor to sustain a business if these banks are closed. Uh, those in services, uh, think like a doctor or a lawyer or a you know, beautician or pretty much anybody that is servicing Black consumers, you know, they have as a black customer base because of uh, segregation, be it Jim Crow or um, de facto segregation. They're losing their um, they're losing their businesses because they're losing their customer base. Because even though a lot of companies service black consumers, a lot of those consumers were employed by white companies. I, I'll reiterate that. Imagine you own a I don't know a. I'm going to go with a doctor's office. Imagine you're in a doctor's office servicing African-American patients. Okay, cool. So, you, you know, you, you, you know you're, you're a black doctor. You have black patients. You get your money from those black patients. But those black patients, most of them, they work for, like, the factories and stuff. They work manufacturing jobs that aren't owned by African-Americans. And so once these companies start firing white workers or once the banks go under, they have, they have no customer base. Like, you know, all sorts of black businesses go under in much higher numbers in uh, the Great Depression because of this uh, this underlying principle. Oftentimes, African-Americans were, you know, the old saying, first hired, sorry, last hired, first fired. You know, oftentimes these white businesses were like, look, I'm not going to keep a, a black person in a job 
you know, even if I can pay them less because a white person is going to need it. Kind of show this underlying racism. What's even worse is that there's really nowhere to migrate. You know, remember, most of these people in urban areas, they have migrated there because they wanted to leave the rural areas and the limited job opportunities. The problem is there is nowhere to migrate. Where, where could they migrate? I mean, southern black folks had already left the cities. Um, and by the way, the entire country's in pretty bad shape. There's no place in the United States that uh, weathered the Great Depression better than others. It's pretty much a universal depression. Uh, pretty much across the country, everywhere was pretty bad. And by the way, hate to say it, uh, the United States had it better than the rest of the world. Uh, particularly Europe. Uh, as bad as the Great Depression was for the United States, it was way worse in places like Germany. So, yes, it's a horrible situation, but it's pretty much the best game in town. Now, even before the New Deal, there are efforts that uh, try to ex that try to help African Americans, try to do some mutual aid. Uh, for instance, you have the Colored Merchants Association in New York City, which tries to encourage racial solidarity in 1929, kind of taking a page out of Garvey. Uh, they come about right around the time the stock market crashes. They're like, "Hey, why don't we just shop at black businesses? You know, we're, we're going to get a group of stores together." That you know we can um, make sure that we're you know providing goods for the black community. We're going to keep pushing this for them. Um, it doesn't work too well. It lasts for about two years. It lasts for about two years, mainly because the depression was so large. The depression was so large. Plus, with uh, black-owned banks closing and most white banks that do survive not willing to uh, deal with black customers, ooh, it's not that great. Another program that's like, okay, cool, we got to get, we, you know, we, we have to survive is the, uh, the Jobs for Negroes programs. Jobs for Negroes, it begins in St. Louis and uh, kind of spreads around to some other Midwestern cities. Uh, the, the catchphrase that becomes really synonymous with it is don't buy where you can't work. Don't buy where you can't work. Basically, encouraging uh, African Americans don't buy things at stores that don't hire white people, uh, that, that, that don't hire black people. You know, yes, the Great Depression is so horrible, it's so deep, that most African-American-owned grocery stores or clothing stores and things, uh, they've gone under. But people still need food and clothing and goods. I mean, yes, the Great Depression was horrible, but people still ate during it. Not as much. But they still had to, like, buy things from time to time. And basically, the, uh, the Jobs for Negroes program, Don't Buy Where You Can't Work, encourages boycotts of white businesses that don't hire black workers. They said, you know, basically, hey, black consumers are consumers too. Um, you know, we have money. It may not be a lot of money, but hey, it's a Great Depression. All businesses want money. You should hire black workers. If you don't hire black workers, we will not shop there. Now, the boycott is kind of a, a common tactic in this time period. What the Jobs for Negroes program does that's a little bit different is it starts picketing. It's not enough to just, hey, we're not going to shop at uh, the grocery store anymore. I'm not even going to say grocery store, but, you know, uh, Jim's grocery store. You know, they don't hire black workers. It's not enough not to shop there. They want the world to know. So they begin picketing. They said, look, it's, you know, we, we might have limited economics because of the Great Depression, but we can still give you some bad PR. And so basically, they start picketing various jobs, uh, various stores, saying, hey, this store discriminates against African Americans, trying to shame them, trying to basically be like, hey, you know, this is the Great Depression. Uh, 
any business loss is seen as bad. No, no business could take the hit of losing any customers, be black or white. And so they're trying to pressure businesses that are on very precarious ground, because it is a Great Depression, to hire black workers. Now, some stores do say that they're going to hire black workers. Some stores do say they're going to hire black workers. Uh, but the jobs never occur. The jobs never occur. Generally, the store will claim, okay, okay, we're going to hire a bunch of black workers. And it never actually happens. Now, if you go over one slide, you're going to see where this resentment ultimately spills over. The Harlem riot of 1935. All this job resentment really spoils over into this. I'm going to give you a heads up. For any riot, for any sort of like... Um, race riot, or whatever you want to call it, you don't have to scratch the surface of the surface too much. You don't have to scratch the surface too much to get to things like economics. That's totally what happens in 1935. Um, it's never about the enlightening incident. It's always the systematic things, the, the much broader things that happen. None of these riots is ever about the inflammatory incident. It's always the underlying current. Here's the underlying incident. In 1935, a black boy was accused of shoplifting. A black boy was accused of shoplifting. Uh, they said that he st- uh, basically, it was claimed that he stole a pin knife from a corner store. Uh, it was claimed that he stole a pin knife from a corner store. The police were called. Um, he does ultimately escape, but that's not the rumor mill. The, the rumor mill, the word on the street, fog of war, whatever you want to call it, they say, oh my God, this kid was killed. They claim that this child was killed in police custody. If that sounds familiar, that <laughs> uh, police police brutality is the underlying current of a lot of these things. It never really goes away. So what happens after these rumors start spreading is that crowds of black people gather, uh, protesting not just police brutality, but also white merchants for job discrimination. They claim that if there was a black worker, you know, if there was a black store clerk at this store, this incident would have happened. They would have known, hey, you know, we're not going to automatically suspect a black boy of doing anything. Uh, they would have not escalated it if, in case he had taken something. This is all that would have happened. It does end ultimately with rioting, as you can see from the Daily News headline right there. Uh, 4,000 riot, one person is killed. Actually, over the course of the riot, a couple people are killed. But most of the violence was directed towards stores. Over 200 store windows were destroyed, and there's over $2 million worth of damages during the Great Depression. Now, this demonstrates that racial resentment is high during the Great Depression. You know, it's very easy to kind of have this rosy, oh, everybody was poor, and, you know, we were all broke together during the Great Depression. But there's still a lot of racial resentment going on. There's still racial issues, probably honestly uh, more inflamed because of the pressure of the Great Depression. When uh, the riot was investigated by various authorities, uh, the commission decided that it was actually provoked by a lack of funds and relief during the Depression, along with systematic issues of inequality. They said, look, this, this all started because the relief efforts that do exist, a lot of them are discriminatory against African Americans, plus there are much larger issues of inequality within the system of New York City. Now, that's a much bigger issue that may not have been solved. I will tell you an issue that does get solved. Uh, a lot of these African-American groups decide that, you know what, picketing's a pretty good idea. Uh, p- picketing is pretty effective. Um, it's more of a change from the civil rights movement, which beforehand was... Uh, uh, they, 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 previous civil rights group had seen picketing as um, crass or boorish, a bit uncouth. Um, now it's like, hey, this might is a vital, you know, viable tactic. 
particularly in 1937, whenever the Supreme Court said, hey, you know, this is a pretty decent tactic. Y'all should do that. Uh, political resurgence, another big unit. Uh, political resurgence. Uh, this is, uh, we're going to go broad a little bit. Uh, about 1.5 million African Americans do move during the Great Migration, and it does alter the political landscape. Now, despite the plentiful, tremendous amount of issues that were found in places like Chicago and New York and these northern cities where African Americans went to in the Great Migration, they were allowed to vote. That, that is probably one of the few things that they were able to do with pretty limited impairment, honestly, in northern states. Uh, they were allowed to vote. They were allowed to vote. That is one thing that... Uh, that the Great Migration did deliver was African Americans are indeed allowed to vote in northern cities in this time period. There's so many other issues, but they are allowed to vote. And this new influx of voters is very attractive to politicians. Politicians freaking love some votes. They love votes. They love votes. They love votes. They don't care what color the votes are. They just want the most votes. That's how democracy works. This also changes presidential politics. With black people, they're no longer placated with the tokenism that comes from the Republican Party. Um, the Republican Party had long been considered the party of Lincoln and the party that if an African-American could vote, they're going to vote by default because why on earth would they vote for the party of segregation? However, a lot of African-Americans felt that the Republican Party were taking them for granted and maybe there could be something to be had here. Now, this also comes in part because the Republican Party, for the first time, is really pushing to get southern states, particularly on a presidential basis. The Republican Party had not had a strong base in the South since Reconstruction, and there was talk in the 1920s maybe things could change. Um, Hoover is trying to do this. Hoover is trying to get some southern votes, um, and he's not going for the African-American votes because they can't vote in the South. He's trying to build a party base in the Deep South with Republicans, white people. What ends up happening is this kind of causes a little of a, a change in the Republican Party. And a lot of uh, Republican, black Republicans who do exist in the South, they're a limited number, but they do exist. Uh, they lose a lot of their positions. And this is not really great for them. And the 1928 election kind of shows the first sign of change. Now, I'll admit, this is before, this is before the Great Depression. Uh, Herbert Hoover is the guy who gets it for the, uh, for the Republicans. And to be fair to Hoover, a lot of African Americans do vote for him, particularly after 1927. Uh, in the flood of 1927, the Mississippi River flooded, which, if you can imagine, was really bad. Uh, they dynamite the levee to save New Orleans, which ends up flooding a lot of poor people's land and these sharecroppers, places like the Delta, but a lot of these are African-American. Uh, Herbert Hoover, who's just a government official, he's not a president or anything yet, he is the one in charge of the relief efforts, and he actually says during his relief efforts, we're not going to discriminate based upon race. Black people and white people get the same, and so most black people are like, yeah, this guy seems okay. However, Al Smith is a candidate for the Democrats, and he's the first Democratic candidate in quite a while who looks somewhat appealing to black voters in that he's Catholic, um, anti-prohibition, and was seemingly cool with black people for a Democrat. Uh, there's a little bit of the fact that Smith, as a Catholic, he's the first major uh, 
Catholic candidate for any political party, for a major political party. He's getting all sorts of like really offensive questions about his Catholicism and what it means and could he be a true American, you know, could he be a true president? And so there was a sense that, hey, you know, this Al Smith guy, he might be going through some discrimination as well. Now, Hoover does end up winning. He does get most of the African-American vote, but he also gets some Southern states, which shows that uh, the Republican Party is making inroads. Yet Hoover makes it very clear he is really only interested in the white voters of the South. You know, even though there are some black Republicans in the South, uh, he's not too interested in them. And that's kind of, it's kind of seems indicative that maybe the Republicans are not really interested long-term in African-Americans. Um, to be fair, yeah, there's Jim Crow, but a lot of Southern black Republicans, the few there were, they hoped that a Republican president would use the bully pulpit to kind of force more voting rights for African-Americans in the South. Uh, they found that Hoover was not going to be that good for that. However, the, the other big shift that happens in 1928 for the African-American electorate, go over one slide, is the election of Oscar de Priest in 1928. Oscar de Priest uh, wins election to the House of Representatives, and he is the first black congressman since Reconstruction. And more importantly, he is the first black congressman from outside of the South. He is living proof that the Great Migration is changing demographics. Um, he represents Chicago, kind of Chicago South Side, the traditional African-American area of Chicago. And as I said, he is living proof that the Great Migration had changed the demographics of the city. Uh, DePriest is kind of a migrant himself. Uh, admittedly, he comes to Chicago much earlier. Um, he's actually born in Alabama, and he migrates to Chicago around 1899. So he does predate the Great Migration. But he really gains his political power, kind of moves through the Chicago uh, political system as kind of an insider, you know, somebody that the great migrants could lean upon. But the uh, people in Chicago view him as a kind of not a Johnny come lately, somebody who could be trusted, somebody who knew Chicago. Um, he was a Republican. He was a Republican, uh, as most African-Americans were in that time period, but he was celebrated throughout the country by black people as like, hey, maybe things are changing. You know, maybe, you know, we're not just going to have African-Americans who were in Congress 60 years ago during Reconstruction and then faltered for various reasons, uh, racism and Jim Crow and the freaking Klan coming into it. The problem is, once the priest does get to D.C., he does not get a very warm welcome. Uh, very much a pariah due to his race. Um, and Southern Democrats really don't want to be with him socially. I should iterate that for a second. Being a member of Congress, if you're a senator or a congressperson or a representative, uh, it's a very elite fraternity. There are not too many of them. I mean, there's only 535 congressmen total, that's including senators and representatives. Um, it's very... All right, in the pre-nowadays times, <laughs> it was considered very normal and looked good upon that uh, congresspeople hung out together socially, uh, regardless of party, regardless of party. That's probably the big change now is that uh, if you hang out with a Republican, if you're a Democrat or vice versa, you might lose your election because your year is not a true whatever. Uh, in this time period, though, it was a very big thing. It was like, you know, you hang out with everybody, regardless of party, because you're all Congress people. 
you do things together, you have teas together, you talk about bills and stuff together. That's how legislation gets done. You know, it's not just hanging out in Congress. It's also, do you do teas together? Are you going to the theater together? Are you having meals together? And most Southern Democrats refused to, to do anything with DePriest. In fact, um, there was a, a big scandal when DePriest's wife went to a tea. She went to a tea. It wasn't even at the White House, I don't think. It was just like it was a tea for various congresspeople's wives. And, you know, she, she was a wife of a congressperson. She should go. And, like, Southern Democrats were like, oh, my gosh, you're tainting it. Uh, this is low morality. They said this is low morality for people who are in the White House or just low morals of, of Congress. This is horrible. The bigger change, though, is a slow shift towards Democrats. African Americans are slowly shifting towards the Democratic Party. Uh, Hoover was blamed for the Great Depression. Is that fair? Not really. Um, am I going to fight it? No. Uh, the Great Depression was going to happen regardless. The, the stock market was artificially inflated. It had no business being that high. However, Hoover doesn't endear himself to anybody. Because even though he was called the great humanitarian because of what happened during um, the flood of 1927, he does nothing for the Great Depression. Uh, pretty much his logic is um, it's going to cause dependence. Uh, you know, basically, if you get somebody on relief once the, the crisis is over, it's going to cause dependence. When asked why he did it uh, because uh, during the flood and not during the Depression, he said it was because, well, the flood was an act of God. Whereas the Depression is an act of man, and so there's no sense in giving people relief. Uh, that highly gets criticized by black voters. Uh, most black people, I should iterate, do not vote for FDR in 1932. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt does not get a large black vote when he runs in 1932, but he does make overtures towards African Americans. He's the first Democrat to make any sort of overtures for black voters towards, you know, black voters in places like the North, in cities who could vote. Most of them don't vote for him. Most of them stick with Hoover because he's a Republican. But FDR is making some overtures. And there's some thought that, you know what, if FDR gets president, maybe we'll be surprised and he'll do something for black people. You know, maybe he's a Democrat who could do something for us. Uh, the, you know, FDR was very clear during his campaign speeches that the New Deal would be for everybody. The New Deal is for everybody. And there was a hope that, you know what, maybe that's going to include some black folks. Now, Republicans, they figure that, uh, you know, look, we're still the party of Lincoln. Um, most African-American voters will remain you know, faithful to us. We're going to have very high fidelity. Uh, they figure, yeah, you know, Franklin Roosevelt's talking a lot of noise about this new deal, it's probably going to be very expensive and also very discriminatory. Um, they're right. <laughs> uh, the new deal was expensive, and also because Franklin Roosevelt was a Democrat, and most of his party is Southern Democrats, he's appointing Southern Democrats to like administrate the new deal, and these Southern Democrats are about as discriminatory as you can expect because they're freaking Southern Democrats. Uh, in 1934, though, there is a change. Oscar DePriest is defeated for Congress. He is defeated for Congress in favor, if you go over one slide, for Arthur Mitchell. There's Arthur Mitchell. Arthur Mitchell is the first black Democratic congressman. I'll repeat that. He's the first black Democratic congressman. His election overturns another black congressman, also from Chicago. Uh, he really is pushing on economic considerations. 
Uh, he is a Democrat. He's a Democrat, and he's not saying anything about, you know, Southern Democrats or segregation. He's like, look, we got to fix the economy. The Great Depression's horrible. We need relief. He really aligns himself with the New Deal and really pushes this idea that, hey, I'm a black person. I'm for FDR. You can vote for a Democrat. I'm a black Democrat. It's okay. Vote for me. Now, this makes the National Party happy. You know, the National Democratic Party is like, hey, you know, FDR is the first Democrat in a while to win the presidency. Um, these moves toward African-American voters, you know, this could be a new voting base for us. Uh, does feel, does make uh, Southern Congress people irate that uh, Mitchell is elected? Pretty much because they were already, you know, against the priest and he was a Republican. Now Mitchell is a Democrat like they are. And theoretically, they need to be voting together. Like, I said earlier that, you know, bipartisanship was much more important back then, but they still had some partisanship, not as extreme as it is now. And they're like, we refuse to let this black Democrat hang out with us or do anything, even though we expect his votes. This also impacted, in general, more African-Americans became more interested in politics in general, um, just because they're allowed to vote, regardless of party. More African-Americans get involved in politics for the first time simply because they're allowed to vote. I mean, that doesn't sound too revolutionary. But you have to remember, before the Great Migration, before there's like larger scale African-American voting opportunities, most black folks don't care about politics. So they figure, look, we can't vote and they're going to be racist for us regardless. Now, yeah, a lot of African-Americans do go for FDR purely on economic reasons, uh, the idea that, you know, Hoover, who might theoretically be better for African-Americans on social issues, is not offering any relief to anybody, whereas FDR is offering relief to everybody. Maybe some of that will trickle down to African-Americans. And FDR also placates them with things like, if you go over one slide, the Black Cabinet. Uh, the Black Cabinet is an informal group. There's several different members. But basically, he talks to various African-American business leaders, uh, civic leaders, about, hey, what's going on in black world? You know, how can we help out African-Americans? Um, is this tokenism? Sure, it's absolutely tokenism. But it goes a long way for black voters thinking, hey, maybe FDR is actually listening to us. You know, will FDR actually do the things he promises? Not really. We're going to get into that in a second. But is he at least, you know, listening to us and maybe something might change? Absolutely. I, I should mention, though, Eleanor Roosevelt is much more popular with African-Americans than her than her husband, uh, primarily because she is a bit more progressive on racial issues, whereas Franklin, um, there's a lot of talk about whether or not Franklin Roosevelt really was progressive in terms of race and his personal beliefs. He might have actually been pretty progressive or pretty pro-African-American. The problem is he is a he is a politician and he has to deal with his own party, which is the vast majority is Southern Democrats, who are the ones who invent Jim Crow and don't like African Americans too much for racist reasons. Uh, Eleanor can be a bit more progressive; she can be a bit more upfront. You know, she doesn't have to wheel and deal with Southern politicians. So, for instance, uh, she would regularly give speeches at Howard University. Howard University, the big uh, granddaddy of all HBCUs. Um, you know, she gives speeches at Howard. She even lets herself get escorted by black ROTC soldiers. She's like, hey, you know, these ROTC guys, they seem, you know, it, it, it's no big deal to have an ROTC honor guard. 
And because it's Howard, they're black. She's like, that's fine. This gets photographed. The pictures are in the newspaper. A lot of African-Americans are like, oh, my gosh, this is a big deal. You know, she's showing respect for African-Americans. Whereas a lot of Southerners view this as evidence of the moral failure of the, of the Roosevelt's. Like, oh, my God, the Roosevelt's, despite being Democrats, they are race lovers. You know, this is a bad thing. Now, the thing with FDR, when it counted, when it counted, FDR didn't deliver what black voters wanted. When it came to, like, the hardcore race issues, yeah, he, there might be some token efforts here or there, you know, letting a black singer sing at the White House, which, hey, don't get me wrong, that's pretty, Mary Manderson, I mean, Mary Manderson, great singer, it's, I'm really glad Eleanor Roosevelt did that. But when it comes to, like, the stuff that really helps African Americans, like, on a baseline level, FDR wouldn't do it. For instance, FDR, despite talking a lot of stuff about civil rights, never passed the anti-lynching bill. In fact, he never endorsed it. There's an anti-lynching bill, a federal anti-lynching bill, which we've talked about last class or the class before. A federal anti-lynching bill has never been passed. Um, FDR does not put his weight behind it. Why? Because it means breaking with his own party, which means upsetting Southern Democrats who don't like him in the first place. In addition, there's anti-poll tax bills, uh, bills to get rid of the poll tax. I talked to you earlier about the NAACP had had some early success in getting poll taxes revoked. In certain municipalities, they weren't able to get a law about it yet. It hadn't gone to the Supreme Court yet. And there was a movement like, hey, why don't we just get, get a law passed, you know, skip the Supreme Court. FDR refused to do that. As we're about to get into, most of the New Deal is pretty discriminatory uh, for a lot of different reasons. I mean, you could, take the, you could take the high road and be like, oh, well, it's just because the administrators – but FDR, the federal government, never really pushes getting these benefits towards African Americans. So even though FDR is really pushing for black voters and, you know, he's happy to do things like the black cabinet, when it comes to getting legislation passed and getting money in people's pockets, he comes up lacking. But I, I should iterate, before we get into the New Deal, the black urban vote continues to become more important. Um, most African Americans don't vote party but on the, uh, in this time period, but on the candidates' individual views on race. Uh, this the, is more prevalent in the 1940s, I should iterate. Um, in the 1940s, the Depression was getting a little bit better before World War II really gets going. I mean, gee, World War II gets going in 1941 for the U.S., so it's fairly early on. Uh, but like in the 1930s, most African Americans are voting primarily on rate, uh, economic considerations, like who's going to give the most relief. Uh, by the time we get to the 40s, how a candidate views race and are they a good race candidate tended to be more important than party. I should also mention, uh, because there are larger voters, uh, black voters, you do have more black elected officials. For the first time since Reconstruction and for the first time period in northern cities and states, there are black elected officials all the way down the line. Also in civics, uh, sorry, in like civil service and civic cities. Man, that's a tongue twister. Civic civil service. And civil service, you know, and civic civic civil service, there we go. You have more black people working in it. Things like, you know, post, post, post workers, uh, policemen, and people who just work for the city, you know, uh, the, the peons in accounting, whatever. <laughs> Not to talk bad about accountants. But, you know, you just have more black people working in various civic 
roles, not even elected officials, but just you know, working at the water company, working at the electric company. And that seems a fairly positive um, in, in development, not just for African-Americans to get the jobs, but also, you know, to have people like, hey, this is a black person with a job and a little bit of authority. That's cool. Whatever. Now let's get to the New Deal programs. I'm about to give y'all alphabet soup. And you know what? I'm not even going to apologize. I'm not even going to apologize. I'm about to give y'all a lot of letters. But... FDR's New Deal made a bunch of government programs, made a ton of government programs. I'm going to talk about a lot of different government programs right now, but they all have issues when it comes to discrimination. Pretty much every single New Deal program seems great, but when it comes to when it's administrated or how it comes out, there are some major issues for African Americans. For instance, you have the NIRA, the National Industrial Recoverment Act. It tries to make a minimum wage. Basically, the minimum wage as we know it comes from the NIRA, the National Industrial Recovery Act, that says all workers should get this minimum wage. Sounds great, right? Wrong. It provided exemptions for certain jobs, certain industries that were pretty much 100% black dominated. For instance, domestic workers. They said domestic workers, a job that was about 99% uh, black, particularly in the South, uh, they do not have a minimum wage. They do not have a minimum wage. Pretty much, this ends up screwing over workers. The other thing the NRA, do, the NIRA does is that it has no real way to ensure compliance. There's no way to make sure that companies are paying wages that they're supposed to pay. So if you're a black worker in a job that, you know, it's posted, hey, everybody, regardless of race, is supposed to get, uh, you know, $5 an hour. And you have no way to have enforcement. And also, it's not a union job. So you're probably going to get, you know, fired immediately if you speak out. There's no way to get into it. Now, is that discrimination? Not really. I mean, sorry, the, the certain jobs um, being exempt from a minimum wage, that is discrimination. Uh, now, having have a compliance system, is that discrimination per se? Not really. But uh, that is problematic. And likewise, African-Americans were much more likely to be paid less than this minimum wage. And if there was no way for them to report this, and if they were reported, they'd probably get fired. It is seen as very discriminatory. Uh, the Agricultural uh, Adjustment Act, the AAA, I talked about that earlier. Lots of issues when it comes to basically the money given to not pay, um, to not grow crops, did not end up trickling down to the sharecroppers. Uh, the other issue is what the AAA allowed for loans. Um, it allowed farmers and landowners to get loans to buy mechanization, mechanical implements, uh, harvesters, combines, things like that, tractors. Now, theoretically, this is going to help out all sorts of industry because, you know, if you get a big, nice loan for a combine, well, you're going to call up John Deere and get a John Deere tractor and you're going to help out American business and you're going to be able to produce more stuff and hooray for America. The problem is this screws over sharecroppers really bad because it eliminates their job entirely because if you have a, a machine, you need a lot less hands to do work. Likewise, um, lower-end workers on the farm like pickers or just generic farm labor, they're also not needed. Uh, mechanization kills southern agriculture. Pretty much the AAA destroys southern agriculture, uh, destroys sharecropping, which, as I said, is that a good thing? Sure. Likewise, is mechanization a good thing? Yeah, well, of course. You know, I like combines. Why not? They're cool. You can 
You pick things a lot faster and a lot more effectively. However, does it screw people over? Yes, it does. Now, black landowners, that's the other key word there, landowners. The New Deal generally did not give stuff to anybody but landowners. They figure landowners are the backbone of this economy. We should help people, you know, we should give money to people who have land. So, for instance, the Rural Electrification Act basically was to help people get electricity. You have to be a landowner for it. Most African Americans in the South or in rural areas, they don't own their own land, so they can't get it. The Tennessee Valley Authority, uh, the TVA is trying to help get electricity to people who live on the Tennessee River and help the, uh, help the regular flooding that occurred. Is that a good thing? Yeah, absolutely. Should that help out African Americans? Yeah, of course. The problem is, it's in the Tennessee Valley, which is Tennessee and Alabama, presided over by white Southerners who, because of the spoil system, are often the most long-tenured Democrats who really try to screw over black people. You know, the, the TVA, they're supposed to give electricity to everybody in the Tennessee Valley. However, certain people got prioritized more than other people. Now, the one exemption that does exist to all this is the Farm Security Administration. If you go over one slide, you're going to see William W. Alexander. Uh, he's the one on the left. Will Alexander, one on the left, he is the guy in charge of the Farm Security Administration. This was designed, well, let me tell you about William for a second. Uh, William Alexander was a Southern guy, but he's like, you know what? Black people should get the same. He said, look, I'm not going to discriminate against black farmers. He's like, I, I think they deserve the same benefit. Now, what does the uh, Farm Security Administration do, the FSA? It gives loans to people who don't own their own farmland to buy it, a.k.a. sharecroppers. This is a system designed to help sharecroppers buy their own land. Is this a good idea? Oh, it's a phenomenally good idea. This is a great idea. You know, basically have sharecroppers buy their own land, help them get loans. They're going to have to pay it back. It's not free land. But you pay back the loan, and you get to own your own land, decide what crops you want to do. You're no longer in debt to the sharecropper. Likewise, to the landowner, I should say. Likewise, you're buying land probably from the landowner, so they get some money too. This should help everybody. However, it is a lightning rod for criticism. This program gets more criticism than pretty much anything else. Uh, the South hates, uh, sorry, Southern landowners hates the Farm Security Administration. They see it as like, you know, favoring African Americans. And the other problem is that it has almost no budget. Um, at its height, it had maybe a fifth of the budget of the AAA. That's at its height. It never had more than like a tenth or a twentieth of the AAA's budget. And the AAA, remember, that's that's just one to help get crops going. Um, this, on the other hand, this one could have been great. However, because of all the criticism, particularly that um, Alexander got, it gets shelved. Basically, the Southern Democrats, of which Alexander was one of them, by the way, uh, Southern Democrats cut its budget, and then they ultimately just cut the program entirely. They think this is just too whatever. So even when the New Deal is trying not just to even favor African-Americans, but to give them an equal shake, <sighs> criticism of Southern Democrats comes and destroys it. Uh, another one that does okay, though, is the National Youth Administration. Uh, the NYA, uh, basically it's, helped, it's to help people get job training. Uh, basically it's training people and for skills and trades that are going to be needed in the inevitable upcoming war. 
look, I'm going to talk about World War II next class. People weren't stupid. Even in the 30s, they knew that Hitler was bad news. They knew that we're probably going to go to war. So we should start training people. Um, it was mainly for white persons, but about 10% of its participants were black, which is a little less than the U.S. population, but still a decent number. Um, it taught people where they were in places like cities or whatever. So it was de facto segregated in a sense. Like they would go to cities, they would go to areas where people already live. It doesn't spark new segregation. And part of it, was, you know, for certain jobs, they were training together and they had very limited incidents of discrimination. So the NYA, the National Youth Administration, also with the term youth, it's it's helping um, young people get jobs and training with you know those who aren't going to school. Um, it it does okay. Is it problematic? Sure. You know there is some de facto segregation that goes on. Not not too too much. The Triple C though, the Civilian Conservation Corps is an entirely different matter. Um, this takes young folks out into the city. The Triple C, the Civilian Conservation Corps, the CCC. Basically, it is supposed to give young people's jobs, building camps and trails and beautification projects, forestry projects, uh, getting young people in the prime working age, um, you know, 18 to 25, young men who don't otherwise have jobs, giving them a job, paying them a wage. They're supposed to send most of it home to their parents. And also, it too is run by the Army. So there's a little bit of uh, pre-war training going on there. Now, it is extremely segregated. It is extremely segregated. And for the longest time, they do not let black people in. They don't let black young men in at all. They say, you're taking money away from a white person who might need it. Why should we do this for black young men? Uh, in time, though, these these lines do soften a little bit. They do allow about 200,000 young black men in. Uh, but they do face discrimination. It is segregated. Most of the leadership is white, uh, kind of like World War One. Well, not World War One, but yeah, you know, World War One army units, not 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 their home hellfighters. Don't think them, but like the ones that had like white military commanders who didn't think too much of black soldiers. That's what ends up happening in a lot of uh, civilian conservation corps camps for African Americans. Still, most of the black folks who do participate in the civilian conservation corps, um, they're weirdly I don't want to say positive about it, but they don't regret it. Um, I read an account of it, basically, of this, he was an old guy this time, he was just talking about his time, he was like, I think he was like 19 years old whenever he started, black kid, sorry, he's not a kid at the time period, he was a 19-year-old black young man who started this Civilian Conservation Corps, and he was like, yeah, you know, you know, I've been in America my entire life, so like, the discrimination I, you know, had there was not new to me, like, he wasn't like, there wasn't anything that anybody said or did to me that I hadn't experienced already before, like, I am American, but aside from that, it was, it was Fun, you know, like, you know, we got to camp out and build stuff, and uh, I don't regret my time. It was fun. I got paid. So the, the kind of laissez-faire thing. Uh, the one that is really the gift and the curse is the Federal Housing Authority. The FHA was a gift and a curse for black people. Um, this is a pet interest of mine. Uh, I'm Get me going about redlining in class one day, but I'll talk about it very briefly. Uh, the good for African-Americans, the Federal Housing Authority encouraged the building of low-cost housing that had to meet certain criteria for living standards. Uh, it had to have things like gas, running water, electricity, you know. 
And also, there were quotas in place to make sure that some of it goes to black families. Uh, this is the projects, if you want to call it that. The, the first housing projects. You know, large-scale apartments. Um, they, a lot of them in the north were desegregated. It was like, hey, you know, the, the population of this area, um, you know, it's 25% black, 75% white. Well, 25% of these houses have to go to black families and 75% have to go to white families. Um, in the south, it does tend to be more segregated, but they do provide housing for black people. This is considerably better housing than most African Americans were living in that time period. Uh, you know, having things like gas and electricity and running water and um, real insulation and indoor plumbing. I know that's things that we think is the bare basics and as well they should be. I mean, I would not want to live in a house without those things. But for most African-Americans, it's a huge step up in this time period. Uh, the, you know, these apartments, these, these housing projects, they're a lot better than what's going before. And that honestly raises a standard of living in the United States for pretty much everybody. Now, here's the bad. If you go over one slide, you're going to see a redlining map of New Orleans. Um, I could talk about this all day. The FHA totally changes mortgages. This is a much longer topic for another day. Maybe get me in person about this. Mortgages are very important. Um, mortgages are the basis of a lot of people's wealth. Like family wealth, a lot of it comes from mortgages. Um, homes are often the most expensive thing you ever buy in your entire life. Uh, nowadays, it's very common to have a 30-year, 15-year, if you're like, you know, don't want to get sassy with it. But generally, a, a house is something you pay off over 30 years. You end up paying way more than the purchase price on it. And it's generally seen as a very good investment. The Federal Housing Authority changed mortgages. Before this time, most mortgages were what was known as a balloon mortgage. They were five years, and at the end, you had to pay it off with one giant sum. Uh, most people could not own them. Most people could not afford them. Because of that, most people don't own houses. Owning a house is a very stabling presence and often is a good way to build up one's wealth. In, in a way, some people have called a house a savings account that you live in. Because as you live in a house, you're paying off the bank or the mortgage company, whoever, over time, and ultimately you buy it. But you only buy it at the purchase price. But houses generally increase in value, but you only have to pay the initial purchase price. I'll give you the example of my parents. My parents bought a house in Baton Rouge in the 70s for about $24,000. $24,000. They, they paid it off. They had a 30-year note. Uh, that same house now is worth about 20 times that. But they only had to pay off the initial $24,000. Now, they get taxed on the full value of the house, but they only had to pay back the initial $24,000 plus a little bit of interest. Because of that, that's a way to grow wealth. Now, the Federal Housing Authority wanted to make sure that all these houses that got built had certain conditions that they had to hold, but also they wanted to make sure that these houses kept their value up. They want to make sure that they wanted to build a place that the houses would increase in value. And so they went to realtors all across the country and be like, hey, what are the good and bad areas of your town? And they color-coded them. Basically, uh, blue is the best, blue is the best, then green, uh, yellow is not as good, and then red is the absolute worst. Uh, white is just like, um, it was like an industrial area or a commercial area. 
or we're not likely to get mortgages there. Uh, so, for instance, if you look at this map of New Orleans, this map of New Orleans, um, for instance, the quarter, the French quarter, that area is in white because I figure we're probably never going to make a mortgage there. No, you know, nobody's going to build a new house there and that sort of shtick. Um, around St. Charles, around Tulane, around City Park, um, that is in blue. That's the most ideal. There's other couple of pretty good spots. A few spots in green in the west part of town. Lots in yellow, and then the red is the least favorable. Basically, this told the federal government, hey, if you want to give a loan, make sure you give it in one of these nicer colored areas, because if you do, you're more likely to make your investment back. Um, the number one indicator of what was a red area was there are African-Americans living there. Seriously, you, you, you can read these. You can read the reports of these various areas. Uh, there was one, for instance, in uh, I believe it was in Baltimore, where like the the incomes one was a Polish community and one was an African American community next door to each other, same incomes, same prices of houses. The black neighborhood was in red, the the Polish neighborhood was in green, even though they're exactly the same houses, exactly the same like uh, wage, you know, average salary there. And pretty much the notes of the realtor said, yeah. Um, this is a this is an area that doesn't allow white that doesn't allow black people in, and so it's going to retain its value. What ends up happening is a self fulfilling prophecy. It ends up being a, a self fulfilling prophecy. Sorry, Audubon Park is around right around St. Charles. A, a self fulfilling prophecy that the good areas do better, and the bad areas got worse because they couldn't get loans for these houses that are going to be more likely to grow in value with things like internal plumbing and things like that, uh, electricity. And likewise, because pretty much property taxes are what makes schools and city services run, with housing values go down, property taxes go down. Services get worse. Property taxes go up. Services tend to get better. This becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, a legacy that is still in place in a lot of different areas. I should also mention that Social Security discriminates against certain groups uh, mainly domestic workers and a lot of black jobs, for lack of a better term. A lot of jobs that um, were African-American, you know, dominated, they either didn't get Social Security or their um, their benefits were much lower than their white counterparts. Now, by far the worst abuse during the Great Depression was the Tuskegee study. Uh, the Tuskegee study was by far the worst abuse. If you go on one slide. This was done by the U.S. Department of Health. Sorry, the U.S. Health, Health, sorry, U.S. Public Health Service. Uh, basically, without consent, uh, they give 400 poor black men, most of whom are sharecroppers in rural Alabama, syphilis. They literally inject them with syphilis. Ordinary dudes in 1932, actually technically started under Herbert Hoover, but it continued on until the 70s. I repeat, for 40 years, they... Gave these guys syphilis back in the 30s. And basically was like, huh, we're going to see how syphilis, you know, what happens if you don't treat syphilis? They promise these guys free medical care. They pay for their meals. They, you know, they, they give them transportation to and from these hospitals. They're doing an experiment on human people. And they don't tell anybody about it for 40 freaking years. This lasts until 1972. Several of the men die of the disease. Uh, by the way, untreated syphilis is bad. Uh, you can die of it. It'll destroy your brain. 
Um, likewise, a lot of these guys gave it to their wives. Uh, syphilis, if you don't know, is an STD. Um, these guys had sex with their wives and gave their wives syphilis. They didn't know that they had syphilis. They just gave it to their wives. They even gave their children syphilis through birth. You know, if you had sex and get pregnant with syphilis, you could give it to your kid. They do this only to black farmers. They do this only to black sharecroppers. It goes on for 40 years. They finally start giving some reparations in 1974, but come on, injecting somebody with a horrible disease, not telling them about it, and then the fact that there is easy treatment available for syphilis. That's the other thing. Uh, syphilis is an STD. It's not a great STD. I mean, no STD is good, but like penicillin cures it. Like a very basic, very easy antibiotic would kill it instantly. But they don't give it to them, and they let uncontrolled syphilis go for some of these guys for 40 freaking years. Like, that, and because they're black, they figure nobody cares. Like, this is horribly racist. Now, FDR could claim that these issues weren't his fault, but he could have done a lot more. Like, he could have used the bully pulpit to really push this. Uh, to be fair, though, it does allow some black folks a new position in the federal government. But still, the New Deal is very problematic for African Americans. Now let's talk labor for a second. Let's talk labor for a second. Organized labor. Now the New Deal does do some things with labor. For the first time in U.S. history, labor unions are given legitimacy. The National, Reco the National Recovery Act, the NRA, not the National Rifle Association, but the NRA, said basically, hey, labor unions should exist. The federal government should act with labor unions and work, uh, and sorry, and owners, uh, you know, factory owners, capitalists, whatever you want to call them, to work together. Uh, this is giving labor unions legitimacy. Labor unions mushroom. They grow way bigger in this time period. And now that there's more credibility, more African Americans are like, hey, you know what? Maybe we should start joining unions. Get some of those protections. Get some of the benefits that unions provide. The problem is most unions want skilled workers, and also a lot of unions are racist because they view black people as strike breakers, but they want skilled unions. Sorry, sk most unions want skilled workers, which are jobs that most black folks are not able to get. Now this changes with the organization, if you go over one slide, of the CIO, the Congress of Industrial Organizations. The CIO, which is a split off of the much larger American Federation of Labor, the AFL, they have since merged and then they broke off and they split it and then they grew together again. But just know that it's a very broad, unskilled labor union. Basically, the organizers of the CIO said, hey, we want all workers in an industry to unionize, regardless of skill. So, for instance, in steelwork, there's all sorts of workers in steelwork. Yeah, you have some skilled workers, but you also have a lot of unskilled workers. You know, the, the guy who, um, yeah, the guy who beats the iron, that might be a skilled job. No, who shapes the iron. That's a better example. The guy who shapes the iron into utensils or whatever, that's a skilled job. Uh, the guy who just beats it or hauls it off, that's an unskilled job. Older unions said, hey, we just want the guy who beats the iron into shapes to be part of the union because that's a skilled job. The CIO says, nope. Everybody in the iron work. You know, if you're a beater or a guy who hauls iron around, you should be in the union. This allows for more black workers. 
The CIO courts black workers for sheer numbers' sakes, just like how a lot of uh, voters, uh, black voters are recruited by the political parties for sheer numbers' sakes. As time went on, the CIO begins to take over a lot of black-dominated industries. Uh, still work in this time period, very black-dominated. Uh, garment workers, fairly high percentage of African-American workers. Uh, the big one is longshoremen. Uh, longshoremen have pretty much <clears throat> always been very African-American-dominated. Uh, we talked about stevedores in World War I. Guys taking stuff off ships at docks has, like, since America became America in 1776 or whatever, been dominated by African-Americans. Now, what was unique is that the CIO ventures south. The CIO is actually trying to venture south, where unions had never done well. Um, the south traditionally is not a union place, uh, regardless of race. The south has never been a very uh, union-centric place. And the CIO is different because they realize, hey, maybe we should push like racial justice and economic justice in our appeal for union workers. So it's the first time a union saying things like, hey, maybe we should look at African-Americans. Maybe we should uh, help them out with something. Uh, the most impressive thing the CIO gets is it actually gets a, a union contract for workers at R.J. Reynolds. R.J. Reynolds is the major tobacco producer. Uh, this is this is agricultural worker considered unskilled worker considered the epitome of you know sh not sharecropping but like you know low skilled African American worker is something like a tobacco worker and the CIO is actually able to get them to unionize which is crazy impressive in fact something even more impressive if you want to get like really technical the first like large scale amount of slaves brought over for the United for in the United States. Like, first large-scale amount of agricultural slaves were for tobacco. Like, tobacco was the crop that really brought slavery to the United States and, like, really brought African-Americans to the United States and could be hailed as the reason why African-Americans are in a low position for a lot of different reasons. Um, now, people who are picking tobacco and doing stuff are now union workers. That is a, that's a huge step. Now, these unions could even appeal over race. I want to talk to you about a union you've probably never heard about. It's got a fun acronym, but it's a union that I think is pretty interesting for this time period. Happens in rural Arkansas. I'll go over one slide. The Southern Tenant Farmers Union. Yes, the STFU. I know STFU means something else nowadays, but for today's class, it just means the Southern Tenant Farmers Union. Now, I want you to look at membership of this union. If you look at the picture, you're going to see something kind of interesting about it. That's right. It's black and white together. This is a union that was formed at its very basis of the union between black and white workers, actually sharecroppers. These are black and white sharecroppers in rural Arkansas in 1934 coming together to protest those evictions. Remember how I said the AAA the Agricultural Adjustment Act gave landowners money to you know, not grow crops, and most of this used as an excuse to evict their sharecroppers or their tenants. The STFU came together and said, <laughs> STFU, landowners, we have a right to work. They unionize. It starts out, I believe, it's eight black farmers and nine white farmers. 
Like, they're all sharecroppers. They band together. And by 1939, within five years, they've grown to four states and with 30,000 different members, black and white. This bucks a lot of different trends. A lot of times unions, particularly the the more skilled unions, tended to be very um, white-centric, very much like, you know, even the CIO. The CIO was trying to appeal to black workers. It did not allow black members in their leadership. But from its basis, the STFU is it's a sharecropper union, and it has black and white workers working together in its DNA. The leadership had always been black and white together. Now, we can talk about this in class, but they have the most violence come against them than pretty much any of the other groups we're going to talk about, or we have talked about. Uh, there are several riots and mass lynchings in protest of the, farmer, of the uh, Southern Tenant Farmers Union. Like, there is a lot of violence against them. The STFU suffers more violence and hatred than pretty much any group. Like, I guess because it's coming for economics and you see the idea that African Americans and white folks are working together, you could go back to King, uh, not King Philip's War, uh, no, not King Philip's War, but Bacon's Rebellion. Uh, The idea that poor folks were coming together, regardless of race coming together, is often very scary for a lot of Southern elites. And they come down on them hard. In fact, the violence against the STFU was so bad that the federal government actually sent in investigators to be like, what is it about this union that is causing so much violence against it? Uh, The members of the STFU, they were not particularly violent. I mean, they were, you know, they were fighting for their rights, of course, but like, they, they were not like overly protesting or, you know, engaging in like destruction of property or anything that would encourage such loot, uh, such lynchings or whatever. Uh, the animosity they had is just ridiculous. Ultimately, they do try to join the CIO for protection's sake. However, the members of the F- STFU, they don't like the CIO for various reasons. They don't like the fact that it's white dominated. Uh, they also don't like a lot of, uh, a lot of its, uh, politics. We're going to get into far left politics in a second. Uh, elements of the STFU were more socialist and they didn't like some of the leanings of the CIO. They ultimately do left. Speaking of left, I do have to mention this. Go over one side. We're going to be talking about the far left. Uh, the far left, c- communism. Communism. I mentioned this earlier in another class, but um, communists do try to appeal to African Americans during the Great Depression. Uh, they do have limited success. They do try appealing to rural sharecroppers in places like Alabama. Very limited success. Uh, to be fair, a lot of the country is flirting with communism during this time period. Um, if the U.S. was ever going to go communist, it would have been during the Great Depression. The fact that we didn't go communist during the Great Depression, honestly, is one of the successes of the New Deal, if you want to call it a success. Uh, the fact that the, the New Deal made us pretty much stay on the path we were on before. If you don't like communism, that's probably the feather in the New Deal's cap. In rural Alabama, they do try to pro- the communists do try to protest things like lynchings. This is actually one of these pictures uh, by linking lynchings with uh, violence over economic issues. You know, as I said earlier, you, you generally don't have to scratch the surface under a lot of violence to go to an economic issue. Uh, they do try to do this two prong approach. Unlike the CIO, communism has a much higher hill to climb up. Um, this large-scale communist Southern movement among sharecroppers and the poor folks in the South never materialized. Uh, 
for a myriad of reasons that we'll talk about, a lot of it's just like a fundamental misunderstanding about religion and goals of people. Uh, however, it was enough to link this idea that civil rights is somehow linked to communism. That those who don't like civil rights often accuse it of being communist. This is still going on to this day, guys. Um, I remember when Black Lives Matter was coming up, I saw things spread about being like, oh, no, the leaders of Black Lives Matter, they're communists. They're, this is a communist rhetoric going on. The other thing that really links uh, communism to civil rights, you over one slide, final slide, was the Scottsboro Boys case. Uh, this really links, in a lot of people's minds, communism with civil rights. So the Scottsboro Boys, they're a group of nine African-American, I say boys because they're young. They're between the ages of 13 and 20. Um, they're a group of nine black youths. They hop on a freight train. They get on a freight train. They're riding the rails. And on this freight train, on this rail car, are four other people, uh, all of whom are white, two are male, two are female. Now, at some point during the, uh, during the ride, they, there was some words exchange, a, a bit of a, a fight began between the uh, African-Americans and the, and the white, male, white males. Uh, by the time the train arrives at Paint Rock, Arkansas, there's already a posse there, and they are charged with rape. They're charged with rape. Basically, they're accused of doing things to the white girls. Um, basically, what it seems is the, the, the white men, after the fighting for whatever resentment occurred, they said, oh, these guys tried to you know, rape the white girls or tried to do something or were over flirtations. It, it mainly seemed to be a take back. Uh, this, this mob almost lynches the Scottsboro boys. They almost lynched them. Almost. Uh, but... Uh, they were not lynched, and instead they go on a trial. They go on a trial, and within a couple days, all nine were found guilty of rape, and they were sentenced to death. All nine were found guilty of rape, and they were sentenced to death. Now, ironically, uh, when word of this got out, not, not ironically, when word of this got out, there was a lot of outcry amongst various African Americans who were like, this case is just, this is horrible, you know, this is clearly... They're only accused because they were uh, black. You know, there's no evidence of rape at all. You know, nine people participating in rape, that's ridiculous. Like, that, that you can't do that and not have evidence. And, um, however, the state of Alabama was like, no, this is not an injustice. This was a trial. You know, they had the full force of the law behind them. This is not a lynching. But a lot of gr black groups like, there needs to be an appeal. This is a bad trial. Now, the NAACP, we've talked about them before, they're willing to take cases. They don't want to take this case. They debate upon, would this be good for their image? Remember, the NAACP, they're trying to be the elite of the elite. Think of all the criticism that Garvey gave for them. They said, these are nine broke young people. These are not the talented 10th. They're uneducated. They're poor. They're accused of, of a rape crime. You know, they were definitely in the train car with these young women, so maybe something would have happened. And while the NAACP is hemming and hawing about it, the Communist Party sends in their legal division to take it on the case instead. The Communist Party takes the case. They're like, look, this is an injustice, uh, racial injustice. This has nothing to do with communism. This is injustice, and we're going to do something about it. Now, the appeals take a very long time. And 
the Communist Party, their legal team, really fights the case. They go through a long appeals contest. By six years later, 1937, uh, more than half of the nine are, are, are freed. Basically, their, their trial was shown as, you know, this is a, this is a kangaroo court. So, you know, this is, this is, they, they show that this was an injustice. Uh, by the time we get to 1950, the last one is freed. That is 19 years. 19 years until the last Scottsboro boy is freed. Now, is this good work? Oh, absolutely. This is fine work. I, I'm, you know, I don't think anybody is upset about the fact that, hey, these, these kids, I mean, I'm going to call them kids. Some of them might be your age, but 13 to 20 is very young, especially 13, for God's sake. You know, this was a good work that they did. They got free, nine free people off death row. They, they gave the death penalty to 13-year-olds. Well, 13-year-old through 20-year-old. But it also forever linked anything civil rights with communism. You know, the Communist Party did not give up for 20 years to get these Scottsboro boys off. And this is a great thing. But for anybody who wanted to talk bad about communism, sorry, talk bad about civil rights, you could easily throw communism to it. And African-Americans were aware of this. They knew that their movement had to be respectful, had to be something that was viewed as, you know, American. And this is really coming to play next time with the double V campaign in World War II. But with that, this is Dr. Tully for History 313, talking about uh, the Great Depression.